Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. How many like spring and summer? Better than winter? (laughs) I do. (laughs) There is one thing, though, that I'm not crazy about about this time of year, and, um, and that also is springing, and that is groundhogs. How many of you have seen the groundhogs, you know, and purposefully tried to hit them with your car, you know? <laughs> I, see, I see a few hands, you know? Um, you know, they are so incredibly cute, aren't they? They really are. They, are. they are cute creatures, but we like gardening. I don't like gardening. My wife likes gardening, and I like the fact that she likes gardening, you know? So by, by uh, relation, I, I like gardening too. And groundhogs are a big problem for our garden, you know? And so I have kind of what you, I guess you would call a peculiar and possibly controversial way that I deal with groundhogs, you know, and, you know, when I say controversial, if I told you what it was, you wouldn't know whether you should notify uh, police, conservation officers, or CPS, you know, so, so I have this way of dealing with them, um, and, and for a while, my wife wasn't very keen on it. She didn't like it too much, um, but then what happened, I, we moved to her vegetable garden and we dug the fence into the ground, you know, and then we built it up kind of high. And, and the purpose for that was because of the groundhogs. And so we kind of thought that we had eradicated the groundhog problem. And then we came out one morning and her garden was just completely decimated. And one night they just ate everything. They just, they destroyed her garden in one night. And then all of a sudden her tone changed and she said, just do whatever you want. Get an atom bomb, you know, just, just radio waves, anything you want. I don't care anymore about the groundhogs, you know. But one of the things that I have learned in my fight against the groundhogs is that you cannot win. You can't beat the groundhogs, and here's why. is because there is an environment that we live in that is conducive to groundhogs. And as long as we provide the environment in which they can thrive, they are going to keep coming even if we remove them. And so we could kill 50 groundhogs, and we're going to get 50 more groundhogs because they just keep coming back. Now, just to kind of give you the story of how the groundhogs got into the garden, because we couldn't figure it out. We just kept going back there, and they'd be in the garden. And we'd be like, how are they doing this? We're watching the garden. And so when the, when the harvest time came last fall and we destroyed everything, we found that under the tomato overgrowth, they, put a, they had a hole dead center in the garden. They tunneled under the fence, under the buried fence, and they came up in the middle. They had completely foiled our plan, you know. And so now we're just going to do, someone told us, you could just do potatoes and onions. They don't eat those things, you know, <laughs> or something, you know. But here's the thing. There's an environment that's conducive to the problem, and so therefore you can't fix the problem. As many problems as come, there's going to be more problems to replace those problems. Now, I don't know if you can relate to that in your life, but I know that I can. Because here's the reality, is that we live in a fallen world, and we are fallen creatures. And the environment that we live in in a fallen world is a, is a problem world. There are problems that arise. And as many times as problems are solved or that problems go away, 
there's going to be more problems that come because of the environment that we live in. And sometimes problems are small and inconsequential. And sometimes problems decimate your whole life in one night. They burrow up a hole right dead center in the middle of it, and they just wreak havoc, and you wake up in the morning and you say, what in the world happened? And there's nothing that we can do about it as long as we are in this world. And so the real issue that we face as human beings and as Christians, because we're not immune to problems, is not how do we stop problems from happening, because we can't, but rather it's what do we do when problems come? Or where does our help come from? And so as we look at this passage in Mark tonight, the message is, and and, and what we want to examine tonight is the question of where does your help come from? Where do you find help when you are in a time of need? I told you that we're in Mark's gospel, the fifth chapter, and we're really going to pick up right where we left off last time we went on a Wednesday night. And so what we're looking at in the Gospels and following the life of Jesus, and especially in Mark's Gospel, we're looking at the power of Jesus, the power that Jesus has. You might use the word authority because that kind of like speaks of power with a source, power that comes from from somewhere. And that's what Mark is really kind of keyed in on. He's the shortest of the Gospels. If you've looked and thumbed through, you've recognized and realized that. And Mark keeps things real simple, and his agenda was simply that he wanted to declare who Jesus was, which he did in the opening verse of the gospel. He just said the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It doesn't get any clearer than that, and it doesn't lift him any higher than that. It just displays who he is, where he's from, and the source of his power. And then from there, he just gives us like eight chapters of Jesus' power. And he shows the power of Jesus over sicknesses, the power of Jesus over people's infirmities and over even the internal things that are going on inside of people. He shows the power that Jesus had over the elements and over the creation itself. He showed in the last thing that we looked at at the beginning of chapter 5, the power that Jesus had over the demonic realm as he cast out of one man this legion of demons and he showed that, that, that where man is completely powerless to affect change in a life, for him, it's absolutely easy. It's as simple as a word is showing up on the scene. And Mark just shows the power of Jesus, and he just magnifies it greater and greater as he moves through his message. And then he spends the last third of it on his passion talking about how Jesus came to lay down his life and to be the sacrificial lamb and to trade himself for our sake. And so, simple, his person, his power, and then his passion that he gives. And so what we see tonight in this story that we have before us is we see what Jesus can do in his power in a hopeless situation. And sometimes we come into, it's just an ingredient, there's none of us that are immune to it, a situation that is deemed hopeless. There is absolutely no solution for it. There's nothing that we can do to fix it or change it or get out of it. And so as we look at it, we begin in verse 21, and it tells us there, it says that when Jesus passed over again by ship unto the other side. So he has now left the region of the Gadarenes where he cast out the demon and they asked him to leave. And he returns back over to the side of Galilee where Capernaum was and where much of his ministry took place. 
And it says that much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And so before he can even step out of the ship, he's already thronged by a multitude of people that are waiting to be in his presence, wondering what's going to happen next, wondering what he'll say or what he's going to do or where he's going to be. And they're expectant, they're hopeful. And so this multitude is there, and Mark tells us that it was by the sea, meaning that where this story begins is right when Jesus steps out of the boat, but he's going to make his way into the village. And so it paints the picture for us that there's a span between where Jesus is at the beginning and where he's going to end up when things begin to happen. And so it says that, behold now, he's there on the, on the shore. There cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. Now this has got to pique your curiosity right off the bat. Because if you know anything about Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, you know that there was a tension between him and his disciples and the religious rulers and leaders of his day. In fact, Jesus had already had an encounter with the Jews in this region, and there was a division, a sharp division, between them and himself. But now in this instance, a leader, and not only a leader, but Jairus, this man who is the ruler of the synagogue, he's the head of this particular area, he's a power in this religious platform, he comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. Now we find out why. It says in verse 24. It says, and he, or whatever that is, it's actually ripped in my Bible. It says that he besought him greatly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And so we find out the cause or the reason why Jairus comes is because he has a daughter at home. We're going to learn that she's 12 years old and that something has come upon her that cannot be cured by any of the resources that Jairus has at his disposal. And so he comes to Jesus now in desperation, hoping that Jesus will have the answer. And he does two things. He gives a request And then he makes a declaration. The request is, please come and lay your hands on her and she'll be healed. And then the declaration, she shall live. And I love that because there's prayer and then there's faith fueled by desperation. Now it says in verse 24 that Jesus went with him. Now I like that. Because what that means, it means that Jairus' prayer and confession, declaration, got through to Jesus. And in that Jesus agrees to go with Jairus, it indicates that he's on it. Meaning that Jesus has heard his prayer and he has begun the process of what will be the miracle of healing and restoration. The problem on Jairus' end is that although his prayer has been heard and Jesus is on it, he has yet to see the solution or the resolution to the issue at hand. I don't know if you can relate to that. If you've ever been in a situation where you have prayed to Jesus and you've even believed Jesus for something and you've even had a sense in your spirit that Jesus has heard you and that he's on it. 
and yet you don't see the answer yet, and the situation isn't resolved. That's the situation that Jairus finds himself in. Jesus goes with him, but it says that many people followed him and thronged him, meaning that the expedience of the answer is delayed now because of the multitude of people that want to get near to Jesus. And I can just imagine that this is a a contentious feeling in the heart and the spirit of Jairus. It's kind of like shopping on Black Friday. You know, when you're not even there to get a gift, but you're there because you need to like get a toaster because there's people at your house that stayed over from Thanksgiving and you just need to get in and get out and you can't move because there's a multitude. And you're like, come on, come on, come on, get, get out of my way. I just need a toaster. Just, oh, the customer service this is supposed to be marked down. There's only one left. I need a manager, you know, and this whole thing. And you can just get the idea that Jairus is like, get out of the way, get out of the way, move out of the way. Jesus is with me. Come on, I need to get, you know, and this whole thing. And yet, and yet this multitude doesn't care about what Jairus is going through. They want what they want, and they just want to get near to Jesus. And so he's in this cloud of people now, slowly moving their way. And then it says in verse 25, interruption number two, it says that a certain woman, which had an issue of blood, the idea is that she had an issue wherein she was probably hemorrhaging, there was something going on inside of her body, this sickness, this infirmity, that was with her for 12 years. And she had suffered many things of the physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was nothing bettered, but rather she grew worse. And so here's this woman. We're not given her name. We're told that she has this condition and that this condition has been with her for a very, very, very long time. And we're told that four things have happened in her life on account of this condition that she has. The first is that she has been taken advantage of by the people she turned to for help. She went to people that promised that they could help her. People that promised that they could bring a resolution to the situation that she was in. But rather than helping her, they just took advantage of her. That's what it says. It says that she suffered many things of the physicians. Meaning that they didn't help, but they actually took from her. Second thing, it says not only that, but it says that she spent all that she had, meaning that at one point she had at least the luxury of having a little bit of financial backing. Maybe she had some money saved or maybe she had, you know, whatever kind of health insurance they they used in those days. She had something at some point that she was able to use to address this while the condition was present. But now she's in a place where she has spent all of that. Her benefits are, are, are used up. Her bank account is completely empty, and she no longer has the ability to buy her way out of the situation that she's in. The third thing it says is that after all of this, it says that she was nothing bettered. Now, that's frustrating. Because at least after 12 years of trying, you would think that you had a little bit of a lead, a little bit of evidence, maybe a little bit of hope that you were on the right track. But after 12 years of dealing with this condition, when you wake up one morning and you realize that you are as bad as you were on the very first day, only now you've been wounded and robbed and you've got no other options. But then to realize on top of that, that not only are you the same, but you're actually worse, is that the condition has gradually advanced to the point now where it is a greater threat to her and she has no hope, she has no options, and she, like Jairus, finds herself in a 
position of desperation. She's got no more options left. And it says, verse 27, that when she heard of Jesus, she came in behind the press of people and she touched his garment. And here's why, verse 28. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Now, I like this woman. Because she comes to Jesus in her desperation, and she doesn't have the audacity that Jairus did to come and fall down at his feet, but she wants to kind of remain anonymous, and and she's had it with, you know, the people and the pomp and those that promised and all this kind of thing. She's past putting her problems up on Instagram and Facebook and letting everybody else know what the issues are. She hears that there's this Jesus, and it says that she heard of him. And so she heard of his power, she heard of his authority, she heard who she was, and she doesn't even take the time to pray. There's no prayer involved in what she does. Jairus is a prayer with declaration, but for the woman, it's action with declaration. She says, I'm going to touch his clothes, and if he is who he is set forth to be, then I have no doubt that even touching the clothing that this man is wearing is going to be the solution to my issue. And so she declared it in faith. And it says in verse 29, she does this, that straightway, immediately, there isn't a process, there isn't a throng, there isn't a moving to her house, there isn't a stop for prayer, there is an immediate answer to her action as she touches her garment. It says straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up, And she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Now, I love that. Because that just, Jesus, I love the way he does this. He loves to throw a wrench in our excuses. You know, we pray for things sometimes. We're like, Lord, I pray you do something in my life. And then we say, and even if I don't feel anything, Lord, it's okay. Because I know that you, no, she felt it. God did something in her life. And she knew beyond a shadow of a doubt there was something inside that changed immediately when she touched him, and she knew it. Her felt need had been dealt with by Jesus, and she came for that very purpose. And so Jesus deals with this woman now, and he turns around in verse 30, knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him. I don't know why King James used that word. It's power. It's dunamos in the Greek. So he knew that power, something happened when this woman touched him. And that's an interesting dynamic to think that, you know, Jesus, it actually does cost him something. You know, he, he's infinite in his abilities, infinite in his riches. He's infinite in what he has but yet there is still something that happens. And just think about that for a minute as it pertains to your salvation. You know, sometimes we think that Jesus just wrote this blank check and he sealed it with his blood. And so now it's just of no cost to him because it's just paid for in full, this blanket check. It's like all inclusive. But it's interesting to me to realize that he actually feels something go out of him when something comes into us. And that's just precious to me to realize that there's, there's a personal expense in what he imparts And he cares about it, and he recognizes it, and he wants to now account for it. Watch this. It says that he knew that virtue came out of him, and so he turned him around in the press, and he said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Are you kidding? Who touched your clothes? They said, The multitude is thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus looked around about to see her that had done this thing. So he stops. Now, can you just imagine for a minute that you're Jairus? So Jesus is like, wait, stop. 
It's like, no, 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 what do you mean stop? Stop. We're barely moving as it is, and now you're saying, yeah, somebody touched me, and he starts to turn around. His disciples are going, Lord, yeah, they're, I'm touching you, and they're probably touching him. Like, Jesus, see, it was me. I was touching you. Can we get out of the crowd? I don't like crowds. I'm getting anxious. You know, what's going on here, Jesus? And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. Some, somebody touched me. Power. Now, he knew who it was. He's waiting. He's looking. And he sees the woman, and it tells us this woman Verse 33, it says, The woman fearing and trembling and knowing what was done in her. She came and she fell down before him and she told him all the truth. The way Luke's gospel says this, because he records the same instance in the same sequence, Luke says that, that she declared unto him before all. Meaning that she didn't say, Could we just talk about this in private because this has been a real struggle and a real personal issue? She says, I am so free. And I am so sure that what's been done in me is real. And I'm so sure that you're the one that did it, that I'm at a point in my life at this instant moment that I don't care who knows even what the issue was anymore. And she stands up, not wanting to be embarrassed by him, but yet not ashamed of what he did for her. And it says that she fell down before him and she told him all the truth. She came up. Now, why did Jesus do this? Why didn't he just let her get the healing and discreetly go away? Answer is, because if he did that, then she would have gotten what she came for, but she wouldn't have gotten what she needed, and Jesus wouldn't have gotten what he wanted. Because there's a whole lot more at stake when we come to Jesus with a need or an issue than just having the need met. Because if, if, if that was the way it worked, then Jesus would be nothing more than a rabbit's foot. You know, we would just come to him, and we would just say, uh, can I get a piece of that clothing? You know, and we would just touch it. We would give our prayer. He would meet the need, and we'd go on our way. But see, the issue is, and what we discover and will discover as we move through this passage, is that the real issue isn't about the need that's being met in the temporal, but it's the need that's being met in the internal and in the eternal. It's him. It's Jesus. And the other side of that is, what does he want in return? Now, This is the part where Jesus says, let's take an offering. Anybody who wants to be healed, you will reap according to what you... No, 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 because he doesn't do it that way, and he doesn't want what we have. What Jesus wants is relationship, and so for him to identify this woman is paramount for him because the need that she has and the thing that he wants are one and the same, and that is the relationship that will be established. And notice what Jesus says to her. He said unto her, verse 34, daughter probably the most important word in the passage. If you have a pen and it's your Bible, if it's not your Bible, circle that word because that's what he wanted her to hear. That's the singular reason why he singled her out and made her come forward with what the issue was that she was struggling with, that she might hear that word. I am not simply Savior. I am not simply your helper. I am not simply your provider. I am not simply the power in your life that does the things that you need that no one else can do. But the supreme thing that I am to you and want to be for you and that you need from me is to hear me say daughter or to hear me say son or to recognize that the place that I want to have in your life is so much more than business or religion. Daughter. Your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be whole of your plague. Now, I believe Jesus used this word daughter primarily for her sake, but I think he used the word daughter for Jairus' sake too. 
Because remember, what is it that he needs from Jesus still yet at this point? He needs his daughter healed, and he knows the preciousness that his daughter has in his own life as a father. Any of us that are fathers, we know the preciousness of our children to us. And he needed to hear Jesus say to this woman that she was a daughter, and here's why. Because this woman with an issue of blood was probably cast out of community and synagogue by Jairus, who's standing with Jesus. See, if you had an issue of blood, you were considered unclean and you couldn't fellowship with the rest of society. You were like a leper. You were on the outside. And this woman, who is of no value to Jairus at all, and had been pushed to the margins because of her condition, he now hears that the very Savior that he's calling upon for help is looking at her and saying that she's a daughter and that she's present. And I believe that this was probably a strengthening of Jairus' faith to hear if that woman is precious to him on the same level that my daughter is precious to me, then that means that my daughter is absolutely precious to him, and that gives me hope. She needed to hear it. He needed to hear it. It's interesting what Jesus says was the catalyst that caused the solution to come. He said, it's your faith. He said, the fact that you believed, the fact that you moved in faith and acted on your conviction and declared with your mouth that the healing would come, he says it was your faith that healed you. But that was only one of the two things Jesus said that her faith accomplished. He said, your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you well. But then he said, you also, that you have been made whole. And those are two completely separate things. See, you can be healed of something going on in your life. You can be helped with a problem that you have in a particular situation. And yet you can walk away having obtained that and yet still not be whole. But when Jesus comes into a life, he's less concerned with the healing or the help and he's more concerned with making you whole. And that's what Jesus does for this woman. He tells her both things. He says, your faith has made you whole. That's primal. And then he says, second, you're whole of your plague. That's secondary, the whole thing. Well, it says that while he yet spake, that's great for her, isn't it? I'm sure that that Jairus, who, you know, he's hearing this. He's probably not processing the whole daughter thing yet. It probably came to him later. At this point, Jairus is going, can we go now? I mean, my daughter is at home, and, and this woman, this whole thing, this is good for her. But what about my thing? And then watch what happens. It says that while he yet spake, there came one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, certain, which said, your daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? In other words, so now Jairus, he's already frustrated because of the multitude. He's frustrated because of this woman who has jumped in front of him in line and taken her healing before he would get his miracle. And now there's one that comes from his house and said, hey, hey, there's no, no, no reason to trouble Jesus anymore because something has happened that now even Jesus can't fix it. See, before, when she was just sick, then Jesus could fix it. But now that she's dead, now Jesus can't fix it anymore. See, the only reason that these people said that this girl was dead is because she wasn't breathing and she didn't have a pulse. And when they saw that, they they just concluded that now all of a sudden, we have superseded the ability of God. He has power over science to a certain degree, but there is something so final about death that once the death happens, now God is impotent. His hands are tied. He can do nothing about it. He's going, ah, you know. Science is a funny thing, isn't it? 
Have you ever had someone tell you that maybe you're sharing your faith with or you're talking about God and they say that they believe in science or they call themselves a scientist? Now, I love science and I love scientists. I'm amazed at it because God made it and the order of it is amazingly comforting to realize that when I jump up in the air, I'm not going to float away forever. I'm so thankful for science and scientific law, okay? But oftentimes, what happens is that science or scientist, whatever, becomes one of those nice titles that we give for something else that's not maybe labeled as nice, like OCD, right? So, so you know how sometimes like someone doesn't want to be called a janitor? And nothing wrong, we need janitors, you know? <laughs> but sometimes people don't want that, so they call themselves a custodial engineer, you know? <laughs> And there's like this, this nice thing that we call it, you know, like, what's your job? Oh, I'm in the solutions department of a major construction firm. What does that mean? I'm actually a plumber. I clean the clogged toilets. I solve the problem of that, but I don't want to be called that, you know. And so someone who calls himself a scientist, oftentimes they're masking OCD in a way. Here's the OCD, is that I expect that every scientific law can never be violated, and that's where I find my comfort. And as long as no scientific law is ever violated, and it always works every time, then I'm comfortable with my environment. But you start changing that around, and all of a sudden, I'm extremely spun around in circles. And what happens is that people think that scientific law is equal to moral law. But let me tell you something, it's not. And God will not violate moral law, but he loves to violate scientific law, and he does it all the time. Do you realize that God was violating scientific law when he made scientific law? I mean, really, he said light be and light was. You try that. Perform that in a lab. You can't do it. It's impossible. It says, let the dry land appear. God spoke it, and there's the dry land. Boop, there it is. God takes some dust from the ground, 23 elements, and he forms it into a man. Then he goes, and he breathes life into man. He creates life in an instant. He was violating science when he made the whole thing. And then you read the Bible, and you just see God violating science from Genesis to Revelation going right on through. He opens up the heavens, and he shows Jacob that he's there. He's present, the spiritual realm, interacting with the physical. He opens up the Red Sea, and they pass through on such dry ground, they can't even leave a footprint, and then he closes it on the enemies. Joshua looks up at the sky, realizes he needs more time. He says, sun, stand still, and God goes, okay. (laughs) He stops the entire circulation of what's been going from the time God spoke it into existence in the beginning so that Joshua can have a few more hours to get a victory for his army. Water comes out of a rock. Manna comes down from heaven. The earth opens its mouth and swallows people up. The walls of Jericho fall down. And over and over and over again, God shows and he says, I am over scientific law. But then we come to the point where we say, well, he's dead. (laughs) Dang. God can't do anything now. Not so. (laughs) She's dead. Don't trouble the master anymore. And it says, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid Only belief. The second time faith in the passage is attached to a miracle that is birthed or needed because of desperation. And so he suffered no man to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and he saw the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. 
And when he was come in, he said to them, Why do you make this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but asleep. I love that perspective. They knew what a dead person was. They didn't make a mistake. She had been pronounced dead by the medical examiner at this point. What Jesus is telling us here is that there's absolutely no difference in his mind between someone who's dead and someone who's asleep. And to raise the dead is as easy as it is to wake up the sleeping for Jesus. And it says that they laughed him to scorn, but when he had put them all out, he took the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him, and he entered in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand, and he said unto her, Talitha kumai, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose, and she walked, for she was of the age of twelve years, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them strictly that, they should, that no man should know it. And he commanded that something then should then be given to her to eat. And so Jesus makes his way into Jairus' house, finally. They overcome the scorning of the scoffers. He comes to the bedside of this girl with only six people himself. There's seven in the room totally, including the woman. And he speaks this word to her, takes her by the hand, And the miracle comes in the power of Jesus over death that we're so familiar with. We're so aware that he has power over the grave. Jesus takes this young girl and he raises her and he unites her hand back into the hand of her father who's tormented in the situation that he's been in. And it says that they were astonished greatly. They were amazed at the power that Jesus demonstrated over this situation that they were in. So when we look at the passage, what we see is that Jairus gets his resolution. The woman gets her resolution. But what this passage speaks to you and me, it speaks concerning the power and the person of Jesus. That's what it is above all. Above all that happened, above all that Jesus can do, above all the details and all the other things that we can pull out of it, what this passage does is it glorifies the person of Jesus Christ. It shows us of his power. But secondarily, what the passage reveals is that it reveals the bridge that attaches human need to the person that's revealed in the passage. And that bridge is faith. It was the faith of Jairus to be able to profess and declare out loud that if Jesus comes, she will be well. It was the faith of the woman who said, if I but touch the border of his garment, I shall be made well, I'll be made whole. Jesus commending her faith. Jesus encouraging the faith of Jairus, saying, don't be doubtful in the face of scientific law. Only believe in the power of God who created that. And so faith is a big theme in this, and it's important to you and I if we're to gather the meaning and understand what this passage speaks to us. There's four elements about faith that we see in this passage that I just want to draw out to you tonight in the remainder of our time. If you're taking notes, you could write these things down or you could just remember them. They're easy to remember. What we learn about faith in this passage is we learn that faith is prompted by desperation. Faith is prompted by desperation. Desperation happens when a critical need that I have is met with zero options or resources in my hand. That's desperation. A critical need, and I have no ability to meet that need. I can do absolutely nothing about it. And both the woman and Jairus in the passage, both of them met that criteria. They were in desperate situations, and they were all out of options. There was nothing left that they could do. They were powerless, 
And what that did for them is that it left them open to believe in the one thing that was left, and that was Jesus and the power of Jesus. You know, when God pursued my life, it's been 20 years now since I gave my life to Jesus. I was 19, a little over 20 years. And, and when I gave my life to him, when I was in that season of my life, I really believed in my heart that I didn't believe in God. I would say I didn't believe in God. People would say, what are your thoughts on God? I don't believe in God. I'm an agnostic or whatever. You know, people say, I don't even remember. I just, I don't believe in God, you know, and that, that was the thing out of my mouth. But then a sequence of events happened in my life, as happens to all of us, or some of us at least, that bring us to that place. And, and God brought me a place where I was absolutely in desperation. And in that place of desperation, it was there that I called out to Jesus And he came into my life and he saved me and he changed me. But what I realized after that happened is that it wasn't that I didn't believe before. I did believe. Even before I asked and came to him in that way, I did believe in him. And I knew it because there were things that I prayed before I was saved that were an evidence that I believed. Let me give you a for instance. There was one night that I remember I was so tormented in what was going on in my life, that I literally prayed and asked God to leave me alone. I said, God, leave me alone. I know your people are praying for me. Tell them to stop. I don't want you in my life. Now, if that's not evidence that there's faith inside, I believed in God. I just, see, the thing was, I was afraid. I didn't know who he was, and I was afraid of what he would do in my life. And so it wasn't that I didn't believe, it was that I was afraid. But when I came to desperation, it was there that I called out to him, and then I met him. And I found out I had nothing to be afraid of. I found out who he was. See, sometimes God allows, and sometimes God even ordains, desperate situations in our life to come to us because it's in those desperate situations that we realize that it's Jesus or nothing, and it's there that we find him. There might be some of you that are here even now and you might have a desperate situation going on in your life. You might be in a marriage where you think that unless Jesus intervenes in this situation, there is absolutely no hope. Things have happened in the situation that I'm in that are so bad that it's like death. It's like there's no return. Nothing can bring it back from this. Some of you might feel like you're in a situation in your own life. Maybe it's with your health or maybe with your mental health. You feel like you're losing your mind and you're watching it just spiral out of control and you're desperate. You're in a desperate situation. Some of you as parents or maybe some of you as you just look over the the span of your life and you realize the trajectory you wanted to go on, it ain't happening. And you find that if your life isn't going to be wasted, then you're going to need some help from someone other than yourself. And sometimes God allows a desperate situation because it's in a desperate situation that faith is prompted. And here's the good news. That once faith is prompted and you come to Jesus, you realize that nothing is too hard, nothing is too big, and nothing is dead when we put our trust in Jesus. The second thing we realize about faith from this passage is we realize that faith overcomes obstacles. Do you know what the biggest obstacle was in both of these instances, both for Jairus and for the woman? Do you know what the biggest obstacle was that they both had? Anybody want to take a stab at it? You know what it was? It was that they had options. The biggest obstacle to faith that they had was options. See, Jairus had his position. He was a ruler. He was a bigwig. He would have access to the best doctors, the best care. He had the best connections. In his position, he would no doubt have money, which meant he had resources. 
He had everything going for him, Jairus did. The woman had options too. For 12 years, she had options. She had physicians. She had YouTube. She had money. She had herbs and she had whatever she needed. She, for 12 years, she had options. And the first thing that had to happen is that obstacle of options had to be worn out in order for them to find their way. But then they had other options too. The woman had the option, or the, uh, the obstacle, rather, of her condition. Why would Jesus accept me in the condition that I'm in? I'm unclean. She had the condition of her position, that she was ostracized from Jewish community. She had the obstacle of her experience with Jairus, who is now walking shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. She had to overcome the obstacle of being like, that guy hates me, that guy might be able to help me, and somehow I need to get to him without the influence of him. She had to overcome the obstacle that was, all those things made it unlikely for her to come, but she overcame the obstacles. For Jairus, he had obstacles too. He had the obstacle of of his position. The Jews in that day, they didn't receive Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus. And he had to overcome the obstacle of his own religious prejudice in order to get him to Jesus. He also had the obstacle of timing. His miracle didn't happen right away. He had to wait. He had to deal with the bandwidth of the press and deal with the limited resources or the resources being spread out to other people that had need. He had to persevere through the interruption of this woman getting her miracle before he would get his. I don't know, has that ever happened to you where someone has God really show up in their life and you don't know, you know you're supposed to rejoice, but you almost feel like a little bummed? You know, it's not that you're bummed for them, you're just bummed that it's them and not you, right? Like when your girlfriend comes up to you and she shows you the ring and she's like, look, oh yeah, isn't it? And you're like, oh, praise the Lord, bless God, it came through for you, you know, he's so good. Lord, you know, we were praying at the same time, you know, why did she, you know, I'm so thankful for you, and and you are, but you're struggling, you know what it is, God works and, and he saves your best friend's teenager, or your best friend's husband, and you're waiting, you're waiting for it, and sometimes the obstacle, you know what's interesting in this, is you know, do you know one of the biggest obstacles was Jairus' own fault? Because Jesus just did what he asked, right? What did Jesus say? Or what did Jairus say? He said, come to my house. And Jesus said, okay, I'll come to your house. He could have just said, could you just heal her now? That happened, remember? Remember when the other guy said, hey, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, all right, he's, he's healed. And he was healed on the spot, didn't have to go. Jairus is, had to wait because he didn't have enough faith to pray that Jesus could just do it right now. Amazing. He had to overcome the obstacle of discouragement and the obstacle of human reason, but he overcame, and faith overcomes obstacles. Faith also, number three, opens the door to the power of God. Her declaration plus her action equaled the result that she needed. For Jairus, it was his prayer plus his declaration, and it resulted in the raising of the dead. Faith opens the door to the power of God. And then number four, fourth and finally, Faith moves us to the person of Jesus. And if I have lost you, I beg your attention again. Faith moves us to the person of Jesus. Do you realize that the miracle that happened or the miracle that happens or the need that is met or the healing that comes or the resolution to the issue, that is not 
what it's about. The end is not the miracle. The end is Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus would have just let the woman touch his garment and go. But here's the reality, is that problems, issues are going to come. And when that woman left that day, it would only be a matter of time before a new problem would spring up in her life. And eventually, believe it or not, she died of something. And it might have been related to the issue of blood or it might have been of something else. But problems come and go. And Jesus is not the great problem solver, the genie that helps us with everything that we need. That's not the issue. That's not what's at stake here. But what is at stake here is the relationship that is birthed out of the encounter that comes because of the desperate situation. And what happens when that relationship is established is that you learn that when Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all you actually really need. And that's what it's really all about. That word daughter that Jesus used, I told you earlier that it's the most precious word in the passage, and it really is. You know, there was a... um, my, my dad was with us over Easter, and he's a quirky and strange and brilliant, and, uh, and, and um, I want to honor my father. He is a wonder, he's, a, he's an amazing person. And, and we, were, we were together, and we have almost nothing in common, me and my dad. It's really like we have some DNA strands or something somewhere underneath it that we have things in common. And so sometimes when he is with us, and he was for Easter... Uh, there's a struggle of things to talk about. And it's always peaceable. We never, voices never raise. It's not tense. It's not, there's no bitterness or hatred. There's just nothing to talk about. And so sometimes I'll ask him questions just to get him going because he's an amazing storyteller. And he'll just get going on something from the past. And so I'll ask him these stories. And so I asked him a couple of questions that resulted in a few saga epic stories about things in the past, you know. And, and then after the, the stories were over, and I really was, like, thrilled. It was amazing, you know, the whole thing. He came to me and he said, I wanted to tell you something else I thought you'd find interesting. And I said, all right, shoot, what is it? And then he went on to tell me about the day that my brother was conceived. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had that experience of your father telling you, about the day one of your siblings is conceived, but he did it, and he gave me a lot of detail. Not too much, but he gave me a lot of detail. But I was telling Georgia about it later as we were laughing about this, and, and, and what I said to her was, I said, you know what's amazing is I said that, that there is a, a direct correlation between the day my brother was conceived and the way my brother turned out. There really was, because it was such a, a day. It was a day when my dad was really in the grind, and he was trying to get, off the, got, get on the ground and get his career going and his life going, and, and he was just going, and it was going, 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 and my mom happened to be ready and, you know, to ovulate and this whole thing, and he was exhausted. And the, you know, the, I don't have to give you the whole thing, but there's a reason for it, okay? This isn't a tangent, you know? <laughs> but I said, you know, man, that's exactly like my brother. Like, he's always in the grind, and he's always succeeding, and it's like he's go, 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 and it just pressed through and get it done. I was like, this is amazing. And then I turned to my wife, and I, and I said, you know, it kind of makes me wonder what my dad was doing the day I was conceived, you know? <laughs> because, because I almost think that if he were to tell that story, he would say, it's, it would start with, well, I went out drinking with my friends. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and here's why I share that, is because growing up, 
I, I, my brother, obviously very successful. He did everything right, did everything well. My dad never knew quite what to do with me. And so he didn't. And, and, and so, you know, while he was training, raising, molding my brother and setting him up, I was kind of like playing with Legos and, you know, getting muddy out in the yard, you know, and that's, and, and it's just like this thing. And so I didn't have that. I didn't have that that I needed, that I probably was craving but didn't even know it. But whenever there's a vacuum, you fill that vacuum with something. So what I did is I was fathered by everything else. I was fathered by my friends. I was fathered by television. I was fathered by whatever influence I could uh, be attracted to. And I would go from thing to thing to thing. And and I kind of had this mentality somewhere inside that, okay, I'm not really wanted. I mean, I'm there and I'm cared for, but I'm not really like a son. What happened is when I became born again and God adopted me into his family, I carried that same mentality into my Christian experience. And so what happened is I thought, okay, well, God has like his biological sons and daughters. You know, and these are like the people that he really is, up, he's, he's caring for, he's investing in, he's teaching them, he's molding them, calling their life, he's giving them of his spirit. And I'm kind of that guy in the room that he felt bad for. And so he adopted him and I'm at the table and I get to eat all the food and I get to be the beneficiary But I'm not really there. And so here's what I did. And maybe you can relate to this why I share all this. Here's what I did. Is that I felt, and and this was just a faith issue, I believed that I was tolerated and not really wanted. And so because I believed that, I didn't look to God as my father. I looked to him as my savior. I looked to him as as all the things he promises to be. But I just didn't look at him as my father. And so what I did is I, I found that fathering somewhere else. And so I looked at other Christians. I looked at pastors. I looked at spiritual leaders. I looked at other people. And I, and I, well, how do you do this thing? How does this work? But then there was a day when I realized, and I don't know if God just allowed faith or if I just grew to the point where I realized, daughter, no, no not me, son. But I realized he wants me. He didn't call me and save me because he's tolerating me. He called me and he saved me because he wants me. And he wants me to be his son. And that actually means something. Because just like my father with my brother, he was taught, he was molded, he assimilated, he shares the same strengths, the same values, he carries the wisdom and the nature, some of the quirks as well. You know, he carries all those things with him. And that's what God wants to do in our lives is that he wants to so father you and I that he lays his hand upon our head while we're walking with him day by day. And he's translating to us not only just promises and things and writing checks and helping us, but he's with us. We're becoming like him. His wisdom is being assimilated into our lives. His presence is going with us where we go. His favor is upon us. He actually has a plan and something that he's placed inside of us that comes from himself that he's raising us up into and he's helping us along the way, and he wants to set us up into the place that he ultimately designed and made us to be. That's what fathers do. But what is our faith? Do we really believe that? Or do we think, no, he's there, he's somewhere, but... I ask you this question as we close. It comes from a prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3. He said to the Ephesian church, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, he said, he prayed for them, he said that Christ 
may dwell in your hearts by faith that you, listen, that you being rooted and grounded in what? Rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what God wants for your life. And so I ask you this question as we close. Where are your roots planted? Because where your roots are planted is going to tell you where your faith is set. What are your roots? Your roots are where you draw life from. Your roots plug into a source that feeds you. And so what is your source? Where are your roots planted? Are your roots planted in what other people are doing? Are your roots planted in some pleasure? Are you drawing life from some pleasure or some experience? Are your roots planted in the soil of the world and you gain your, 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 your sense of well-being, your sense of satisfaction from what you can get out of the world? What are your roots set in? Or are your roots daily in a place where you say, Father, Father, you made these roots. And there's channels and there's avenues and there's things that you want to do and you can satisfy and you can fill every part of what I am. And you can be my God, and I want my roots set in the soil of your love, every one of them. And maybe for some of us, I know for me, I know for me it meant some of my roots needed to be healed. Because I had had roots dug so far into the wrong things for so long that they'd lost all sensitivity in all life. And where at one time it was pleasurable, now there's just death. But Lord, would you please set my roots in you? I believe, I believe, Lord, that you want to make me whole. I believe, Lord, that you want to be my father, that you're more than just a God, you're more than just a savior, you're more than just Lord over all things and powerful, but you want to be to me what I was created for. And I want to take my place in there. As we close the service now, I ask, maybe you're here tonight, and maybe, I know that there's a broad swath of things represented here, maybe you're in a desperate situation. And you desperately need God to come through on your behalf. And maybe that's you, and I'd just like to pray for you. Maybe you'd just like to stand right where you are and say, you know what, I have a need. And I believe that this passage shows me that Jesus is powerful enough to meet that need. And I believe him for the meeting of that need. Maybe you're here tonight, and you're in a place where you just say, you know what, I'm not desperate today. But I can't say that the roots have been in the wrong soil for maybe quite some time now. And if I, could, if I could touch the hem of his garment tonight, that would be my prayer. I would say, Lord, would you take the roots of my life that I've been using to soak up so many other things and would you teach me what it means to just be filled with the power of your love? And maybe you're here tonight and you just need Jesus. I need Jesus. You know, you don't have to be in a desperate situation to be desperate. You just have to realize who he is and who you are. And all you've met the criteria. Because all of a sudden, you're in a critical situation and you have no ability to do anything about it. He wants to be your father. Lord, I just pray right now for those that have stood and, and those that have seated, but they're standing in their hearts. And Lord, I pray tonight in Jesus' name that you 
would lay your hand upon every one of us. Lord, the needs that need to be met, I pray that you'd stir up faith that those needs would be met. For those that need to encounter you, Lord, that there would be an encounter, that it would be real and lasting and sustained. And that there would be a flood of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that the love of God would be shed abroad in our hearts by your Spirit that you've given to us. We thank you for your power, Lord. We thank you for your authority. We thank you, Lord, that you speak and things are. We thank you that you're the God that wants to change situations and circumstances. But more than all of that, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the love that you give. We thank you for the way that you satisfy. We thank you, Lord, that you want to be our father. And Lord, we want to be your kids. So Lord, hear our prayer tonight. Meet us where we are. Change us from the inside out. Revive our weary spirits. Blow the lid off the box we've put you in and show us that you're God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.